Yep, indeed. Alpha is beginning this coming Friday, actually, on the 22nd of October. We are very thankful we've got seven or eight guests confirmed for Alpha. We want to in continue to remember or continue to nudge us, you know, that this is all part of living out a lifestyle of, of evangelism and a culture of discipleship to remind and to encourage us, right, to go and make those invitations, to invite people for Alpha, people who are hungry, people who are questioning, and we never know how God might work. So Alpha begins this Friday, and of course, registration is still open. Honestly, registration will be open all the way through Alpha, but because of planning, please take the weekend to go and invite so that we will know the number of facilitators and who would best, would, would best fit the personalities as well. So let's go forth and invite people for Alpha. The sign-up link, we'll send it out again on the church WhatsApp later on. But yes, let's press on to invite people for Alpha. So with that, as we come into today's word, let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your love. We thank you that you have drenched us in your love. We thank you that we, our hearts can overflow with your love. We continue to pray for all of us as a church and as a nation that, Lord, you continue to lead us through these difficult times. Help us to adopt a Christ-like mind. Help us to have the mind of Christ even as we learn what it means to, to discern and to live through COVID-19, to learn what it means to live with COVID-19. We continue lifting up to you, Lord, the elderly, the frontline workers, the children, and the pe various people, Lord, who are especially vulnerable to the virus. We pray the Lord, that you continue to protect them and lead us and help us to live a life that witnesses to them as well. We ask, Lord, that today as we come into the sermon, the Lord, you speak to us. May your word pierce us like a double-edged sword and may it change the very way that we live our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So not sure how many of us like to solve puzzles or we have a desperate need for closure. Right? Like when something isn't completed, there's an itch in us that cannot be scratched. Okay, take a look at this video. I've come up with a series of exercises to help with your compulsive need for closure. What? I take issue with the word compulsive. <laughs> All I'm saying is we live in a world where closure isn't always an op. <laughs> Shun, okay. <laughs> for the sake of argument, let's say I have a problem. What would be your plan for addressing it? I'm going to recondition your brain so that the need for completion isn't so overwhelming. <laughs> By playing tic-tac-toe? Yep, your turn. Oh, Amy. <laughs> and you wonder why people think neuroscience is nothing but a goofy game for diaper babies. <laughs> Tic-tac-toe can only end in win, lose, or draw, none of which will deny me closure, especially since I'm about to win. <laughs> so maybe some of us are like Sheldon, right? Like we have a desperate need for closure, right? If I make that sound, dun, 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 your mind just goes dun, dun. Right? And maybe some of us have that approach, or at least I had that approach when I approached this passage in 1 Corinthians 13, where I wondered for a really, really long time, why did Paul 
put this passage here. And maybe I'm not alone in, in wondering that, right? Maybe we are thinking to ourselves that we're going to listen to a sermon on marriage. The answer is no, because if it is, I wouldn't be giving it. So as we look to, to 1 Corinthians 13 today, what we're going to try and do is to close that loop, to help us understand and help us situate why Paul speaks of a way of love, why Paul wants to emphasize this way of love. And, he's, and we're going to look at it in terms of how it fits in the bigger picture of 1 Corinthians and then, of course, in the bigger picture of our lives. So we've heard it said before, right, that, that these letters, um, they were written as a whole and they were meant to be read as a whole and chapters and verses were added later. And especially here, those chapters and verses are really more a hindrance are really more a hindrance than a help. So to give, to give us a lens by which to view this chapter, there, there are three things that we need to keep in mind. First, that Paul is writing all this while trying to counsel the Corinthian church into what it means to build a healthy church, into what it means to be a healthy church. And the second is what we went through in chapter 8 when we, when we, are, we, we were reminded sorry, that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up that it's not as important for us to have knowledge about God than it is to apply this knowledge in love. Then we went to chapter 12, or rather we skipped past chapter 12 in this series, but chapter 12 talks about the spiritual gifts, where Paul discusses the spiritual gifts, and we know from the sermon earlier in the year that these gifts are indeed alive and active today, and they are given for the common good of the body. And these are topics that we have covered extensively at the start of the year, and something that Bishop Renes has covered during our Holy Spirit conference in the middle of the year as well. But right at the end of chapter 12, as he discusses these gifts, as Paul writes about what it means to live a life as a church, as he brings the, the discussion on gifts to an end, it says this, And I will show you a still more excellent way that he says there is a more excellent way. Or in some translation, it says, I will show you a higher way. That's not to invalidate or to cheapen the gifts that were covered in chapter 12, right? But it is to say that these gifts pale in comparison or they lose their value in comparison to what Paul speaks about. And that is where Paul brings in the way of love. In fact, if we skip forward to chapter 14, Paul speaks about how these gifts are to be used. He talks about how we should use these gifts in the body of Christ. So if we take a helicopter view, if you like, from chapter 12, Paul affirms the spiritual gifts. In chapter 13, Paul speaks of the way of love. And in chapter 14, Paul talks about using these gifts. And what this shows us quite clearly is that this way of love forms the bridge between gifts and using them well. In other words, Paul points, Paul's point rather about the way of love is nothing short of what needs to govern our Christian life. That love is the glue that holds us all together. That the way of love is to be how we live and act as a Christian community. It is how the church should behave. That far from being only a passage that we hear at weddings, love is patient, love is kind, this is the very principle that we should live by as saints. 
This is the very principle that we should live by as Christians. And it's a tall task. Right? Like all of us will have failed at one point or another. But our failure should not compromise the standard. That we need to all the more hold ourselves and remind ourselves to the standard of love that Christ is calling us to, to go to Him and to seek forgiveness and to go again to live in this way of love. So with that, we read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As, prof as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we come into 1 Corinthians 13, this is how we're going to break it up. We'll begin from verses 1 to 3 that talks about the value of love. We'll then explore the character of love. What does love look like before we appreciate the permanence of love? So before we dive in, it's important to understand just what kind of love Paul is speaking about here. Where love, in this case, is the word agape. Love is the word agape. And very often when we think of agape love, we hear about it being described with words like unconditional or everlasting. And those are all true. But equally important to this characteristic of agape is the idea that love is not just an emotion. That agape love is an intentional decision. Donald Burdick, a New, a New Testament professor in Greek, describes it this way, that agape connotates a love in which the mind analyzes and the will chooses the object to be loved. It is not a term given wholly to emotion, but involves the whole man, emotions, intellect, and will. It is a deliberate free act that is the decision of the subject rather than the result of overpowering emotion. That means to say that the life that we are being called to, the love that we are being challenged to show, church, is one that is not just a matter of doing it when we feel like it, 
but it is an intentional decision to deny ourselves and to love the people that God has put in our midst. Right? To borrow a phrase from Grey's Anatomy's lead character's marriage vows, it's to love you even when I hate you. Right? To constantly make that choice to love. With that, we come to the value of love. Verses 1 to 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not loved, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul's point is this. Even if you and I have all the gifts in the world, but we do not use them in love, these gifts count for nothing. See, in the church of Corinth, they had begun priding themselves on these gifts, right? They had, rec they, they had received, and implicitly from the sheer number of times that Paul addressed the issue, many of them were priding themselves that they had gifts, perhaps specifically the gift of tongues, but as Bishop Rennes said during our conference, right, this, this gift of tongues is one of the gifts, although not uncommon, but it's only one of. And each of us have been given a gift and there's nothing that we need to pride ourselves over. In fact, what Paul is saying is that we may be gifted, but it counts for nothing without love. That we may be gifted, but it counts for nothing without love. Sorry, the slides, my phone is lagging. And this same principle, right, it applies to us that whether we speak in tongues of men and angels, that is to say, if we have the gift of tongues or if we are good orators or if we have prophetic powers, meaning the ability to receive a revelation from God, to know a word in season, or even if we have the ability to understand great mysteries, referring perhaps to a God-given ability to, to, to have insight into a situation or maybe even to understand deep biblical truths like no one else. But if we simply lord these gifts over the people around us, if we use these gifts as a stick by which to beat people with, then they count for nothing because our actions show that we have not loved. And if we pick up specifically in verse 2, where it says, if I have faith, it's important to recognize that this is not referring to saving faith, right? As, as shown by the, by the follow-up phrase, so as to move mountains. This is pointing to a miraculous faith, to a faith that believes that miracles can happen. But again, that same principle applies, that even if we can have all that faith in the world, a faith to see a miracle happen, but we have not loved, it counts for nothing. In other words, just as how in many of our homes nowadays, we have that filter that we send tap water through so that we can drink it straight away. That filter that we need to send our gifts through is love. Otherwise, whatever comes out has the potential to harm and ends up counting for nothing. And in verse 3, then Paul extends the example beyond just gifts. In verse 3, it says, If I gave away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. 
And here's an important switch because here Paul not only deals with gifts, Paul deals with acts of service. Right? It says, if I give away all I have. But yet again, if we hold this badge, this, this, our, our act of service as a badge of honour, right? if, if our acts of service become what we pride ourselves upon, or we may even go as far to say that we'll be martyrs for the faith, we'll deliver up our bodies to be burned, as that verse says. But if we do all these out of selfish ambition, if we do all these out of our own need to want to satisfy ourselves, and we don't do this out of love, they count for nothing. That even if we give up our all, even if the outward action follows what Jesus tells us, to serve the poor, right, whatever you do for these, for the least of these you do for me, or even if we die as martyrs to the faith, if we do not do these acts out of love, those acts in itself count for nothing. In fact, what Paul is saying is this. What Paul is saying is that the value of love is that it gives everything its value. The value of love is that it gives everything its value. So if we relate, if we relate it to our own lives, even if we know all about the Bible, we might even be like gifted theologically, gifted into the insights of God, or we are gifted in prayer, we are gifted in what God wants to say, we have insight into the Word of God for this season, but we use those things as a way to bulldoze our way into people's lives, there's still error because we have not done those things in love. So the natural question to follow then is Paul keeps talking about doing things in love, right? But what is love? And that's where, from verses 4 to 7, Paul begins to describe the character of love. Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Earlier we spoke about agape we recognize that agape love is a deliberate choice. So if we like, what Paul describes here is what does agape look like? That he doesn't just say love, love, love. He says love looks like this. So Paul actually begins by describing what love is not, right? It does not envy, it does not boast, it's not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it's not irritable, it's not resentful, it does not rejoice in wrong. But for the sake of time, we will not delve into this portion. Instead, we will focus on Paul's descriptions on what love is. And hopefully by doing that, as we live out what love is, we'll naturally move away from what love is not. So Paul begins, love is patient and kind. And in some versions, it says patient is that it is a long-suffering and it suffers wrong. And if we think for a minute that it's just, okay, I can tahan, I can tahan. The parallel, the description of this sort of long-suffering is one that is found in 2 Peter 3.9 that says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, 
but everyone to come to repentance. And that should put things into perspective for us, that the sort of patience that is being described here is far beyond human patience. It is pointing to the very sort of patience that Christ, that God, has with us when we sin. A patience that waits without resentment for people to realise what is right. The ancient preacher John Chrysostom describes this word to be used of the man who is wrong, wronged, and who easily has the power to avenge himself, but will not do it. And in turn then, this is to then be expressed out in a life of kindness, simple acts of care and concern for the people around us. Then at the end of verse 6, Paul says that love rejoices with the truth. And this is a really important aspect of love. Because to say that it rejoices with the truth is to recognize that love is not all sayang, sayang, and nice and happy and dandy, or living love or, or framing love with this misguided definition of gentleness. To say that love rejoices with truth is to say that love finds its satisfaction, that it is truly home when it can live in truth. That means that to bring people into truth, to disciple and correct the people around us is an aspect of true love. That is what it means to rejoice with the truth. Because if we think about that on the flip side, if we hold back that correction, it would mean that we don't love them because we are in, inadvertently, if you like, rejoicing in wrongdoing. Finally then, Paul says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And when Paul writes all things here, Paul really means all things. All means all. That true love is not just the last for seasons, it's not to be defined by circumstance, it's not to be affected by feeling. True love stands the test of time. And there is really no other way to put it that when Paul says all, it really means all. Through every offence, through every high, through every low, in sickness and in health, through every miscommunication, through every mistake, through every celebration, love is to last it all. In fact, that first phrase, that first phrase that says, bears all things, is in some versions translated, cover. And here, it's important to say that cover does not mean cover up. It does not mean that we ignore someone's wrongdoing. But it does mean that we don't proclaim or define a person by his or her mistake. That we don't define a person by his or her actions. Of course, there are situations where someone's mistakes or wrongdoings, they need to be highlighted. For example, someone's preaching a twisted gospel or something is obviously wrong with what that person has done and there's a need to be accountable to the people around us. But having said all that, we should not be turning these things into conversation fodder even when we need to unload. And I'm speaking that to myself as much as it is to everyone else, that we must recognize that the standard of love that we are being called to 
is to love a person enough that we correct that person, but we need not destroy that person's reputation or destroy that person's character. Charles Spurgeon compares it to a pearl. And I did not know this, but apparently this is how pearls are formed according to Google, right? That a natural pearl forms when an irritant works its way into an oyster and as a defense mechanism, the oyster then coats the irritant with a fluid and layer upon layer, the coating is deposited until the pearl is formed. And that describes a beautiful picture that it exudes of itself to cover a mistake that eventually something beautiful is formed. Are we able to do that to those who offend us? That we provide them cover? That we give of ourselves to not hurt or proclaim their wrongdoings. Instead, we give of ourselves to turn this very offender, to turn this very offense into something beautiful. And in that sentence, precisely to bear all things, that we give of ourselves to not hurt or proclaim a person's wrongdoing, precisely in doing that is what allows us to believe and hope. Of course, at some level, or maybe primarily, it points us to believing and hoping in God. But equally, it is to continue believing and hoping in a person that the past does not turn us pessimistic. And then Paul says to endure all things. And this idea of endure is not simply to tahan and say I can hold on all the way and I will not hold it against the person, I can hold it all in. But in ending, that, in ending this passage with saying endure, it actually means that whatever the circumstance we have gone through with the people around us, because of the standard of love that we are being called to, we continue to hope and bear and cover through every circumstance. And of course, there is only one person in the whole Bible, or in fact, in the whole universe, that can exemplify this, and that is our Lord Jesus Himself. Whereby one exercise that we can do just to embody what it means to live out love is to go through every single characteristic and replace love is patient with Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy and does not boast. And if we go back to the Gospels and find stories for each of these aspects, we'll get the depth of how to live a life of love. But for now, we remember that Paul exhorts the Corinthians to this love in the context of a church community. And what it means for us as a church is to always love, to always show care and concern, to continue to seek and offer, not just seek, but to offer reconciliation and forgiveness, to allow people that space to grow and to learn, to continue living with them, to not change our opinions of them, to constantly make that decision to agape them by loving them even when they have done wrong. And if we are able to do this, then we can become a community that lives by love. Right? And this would extend to our other actions as well, to taking our vaccines, to 
being to, to taking our booster jabs when, when the opportunity comes. In other words, in very cliche terms, to live a life of love is to ask, what would Jesus do? And the rationale for all this is simple, and it's exactly how Paul spends the final portion of this chapter, where he highlights the permanence of love, where he says this, love, is, love never ends, as for prophecies they will pass away, as for tongues they will cease, as for knowledge it will pass away, for we know in part and prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been truly known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. As ever, Paul's eyes are on the eternal. Paul's eyes are not fixed in the here and now. Instead, Paul is asking us to live in light of what is to come. He starts, love never ends. Paul establishes the one aspect that will last forever. And Paul singles out the partial, right? He says prophecies, tongues, knowledge, all these things will pass away. Now, at this point, some scholars, even some famous Bible preachers, right, they like to argue that these points are passing away or that these things have ceased at the end of the apostolic age, right? But to argue for that on the basis of this passage is problematic, largely because of what Paul says in verse 10. Because he says, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And in the Greek, the word that Paul uses to say perfect is the word telos which when we step back and we look at the wider context of Paul's writings, he uses the word telos in 1 Corinthians 1.8 when he says, he will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he uses that in a pretty similar context in 1 Corinthians 15 that we will read next week. Both times referring to Christ's second coming. And that word is repeated in other New Testament passages like James and Revelations. Thus, thus, it is far more likely that what Paul is saying here when he refers to when the perfect comes is that he is pointing to Christ's second coming. And it would make sense, right? Because if we think about it, at the core of these gifts, whether that's knowledge, that's tongues, or that's prophecy, at the core of these gifts, what it is pointing us to in some way is that it is pointing us and proclaiming Christ in our lives. Thus, when Christ returns, these gifts would have fulfilled their purpose. So he points out how the partial will pass away. And then he comes up with this analogy about children and about mirrors that can be a bit confusing when he says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. When I was a man, I gave up childish ways. Here, what Paul is speaking to is actually our current states. That our current states in comparison, in the context of Paul's analogy, is that we are like children that we know in part and we prophesy in part, that whatever we receive from the Lord, even those gifts are only part of a bigger mystery that we are becoming 
a part of. But in time to come, when Christ returns, we will give up these ways, we will give up these quote-unquote childish ways and become like a man. We will reach full maturity in Christ. And so Paul reinforces this again with that mirror analogy when he says to, to look in the mirror dimly but then face to face. Now I know in part that I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. Well, the analogy that Paul is drawing to here is just like for us, when we look at ourselves in a mirror, right? We can maybe understand how our eyes look, how our hands look, how our legs look, but we, all that we know is only superficial. All that we know is part of a larger whole. But when Christ comes, if we abide in this way of love, we shall know fully as we have been fully known. And this, is, and this echoes and parallels what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8.3 when he says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So if we understand what Paul is talking about here in this permanence of love is that all these gifts, what we have, what we have today, the gifts that we have, we need to use them in love. But at the end of the day, they are only a part of a bigger picture. Or perhaps more precisely, they only point to a bigger picture, that we can receive these gifts by faith, we can have, be reinforced by hope, but at the end of the day, we are being called to live in love because that is what will abide. And that's why Paul ends with, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. In doing so, Paul puts a nice little ribbon on the argument that he's been laying out, where Paul's eyes focus on the eternal, where he says and he points to the gifts as being partial, right? But he points us to the fact that upon Christ's return, faith, which is believing in things unseen, will have completed its purpose. Hope in that we trust in Christ's return will be fulfilled. But what remains and what will be the way of life for us in heaven is love. That is the defining character of how we are to live as Christians. And that is the permanence of love that Paul is pointing out here. That we can have all the gifts in the world. We can be the most gifted person in the world. We can have all the blessings, we can be the, the one who serves the most. We can have all these things. But unless we use them in love, they will eventually count for nothing because it is love that will abide into eternity. And this church is the way of love that Paul speaks about and implores us to and is what to define and is what is to define our church life in all saints. It is a love that is a deliberate choice. It is a love that is to saturate and govern the use of the gifts that we have. And the idea of this love, when it, when it loves, when it endure, bears all things and endures all things and it hopes and it believes in all things, the idea is that the giving of this love does not stop even when it is not reciprocated. The reason for that is if Christ is the example of love, if we look back, 
we've obviously fallen short of giving, but Christ has not stopped giving. In fact, if we take a step back, we think about the different issues that Paul had to deal with throughout 1 Corinthians, whether that's personal rights, whether that's their spiritual gifts, whether it's how they deal with grievances, whether it's whether they can eat food offered to idols, all these issues, just think for a minute, how different would these issues have been if the Corinthian church simply abided and lived in a way of love? All of us fall short. By our own strength, we cannot live like this. We are all at times impatient, unkind, boastful, envious, insistent, arrogant, easily provoked, not bearing, trumpeting around others' wrongdoings. But right now, it should be exactly this realization that should pull us close to God's presence to seek His forgiveness, to surrender yet again and ask by the strength of His grace and His cross that we may once again learn to live in and by His love. Now as we bring this to a, to a close, I want to end with the words that Paul begins chapter 14 with. And it rounds up the message really well because in no way does Paul not mean don't chase the spiritual gifts. But he means to live and act in them with love because the gifts were given to build up the body. They were given for the common good of the body. So as Paul begins in chapter 14, is how we're going to end today. Pursue love, church. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this truth that Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians 13. We thank you that indeed many of us have been striving for this in, in our marriage life, that we have chosen this to be to speak over our weddings, to speak over our lives, and, and we pray that indeed that these marriages will live by this way of love. But more than that, Lord, as Paul had intended, as you have intended, Lord, teach us what it means to live in the way of love to one another in this church. What it means to live in the way of love to each and every single one of us in this church. In fact, beyond the walls of this church, Lord, teach us what it means to live in a way of love in bringing people to you, in witnessing for you. That, Lord, we recognize that this way of love is exactly what leads us to live a lifestyle of evangelism because our hearts break that the people who are near and dear to us do not yet know you. And may it not be some campaign or may it not be some agenda that runs our Alpha this year, but may it be this way of love. That in love, we reach out to those that have yet to know you. Because, Lord, you are indeed worthy of every song we could ever sing. And we desire, Lord, to be led 
by your love to those around us, both in the church and beyond. I invite Ken to lead us in this response song.